Section 2 The Wheels of Chance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. The Wheels of Chance by H. G. Wells. Chapter 4 The Riding Forth of Mr. Hoopdriver. Only those who toil six long days out of the seven and all the year round, save for one brief glorious fortnight or ten days in the summertime, know the exquisite sensations of the first holiday morning. All the dreary, uninteresting routine drops from you suddenly. Your chains fall about your feet. All at once you are lord of yourself, lord of every hour in the long, vacant day. You may go where you please. Call none, sir or madam. Have a lapel free of pins, doff your black morning coat and wear the color of your heart, and be a man. You grudge sleep, you grudge eating and drinking even their intrusion on those exquisite moments. There will be no more rising before breakfast in casual old clothing to go dusting and getting ready in a cheerless, shutter-darkened, wrappered-up shop. No more imperious cries of, forward, hoop-driver! No more hasty meals and weary attendance on fitful old women for ten blessed days. The first morning is by far the most glorious, for you hold your whole fortune in your hands. Thereafter, every night comes a pang, a spectre that will not be exercised, the premonition of the return, the shadow of going back, of being put in the cage again for another twelve months, lies blacker and blacker across the sunlight. But on the first morning of the ten, the holiday has no past, and ten days seems as good as infinity. And it was fine, full of a promise of glorious days, a deep blue sky with dazzling piles of white cloud here and there, as though celestial haymakers had been piling the swaths of last night's clouds into cocks for a coming cartage. There were thrushes in the Richmond Road, and a lark on Putney Heath. The freshness of dew was in the air. Dew or the relics of an overnight shower glittered on the leaves and grass. Hoopdriver had breakfasted early by Mrs. Gunn's complacence. He wheeled his machine up Putney Hill, and his heart sang within him. Halfway up, a dissipated-looking black cat rushed home across Fleely Road and vanished under a gate. All the big red-brick houses behind the variegated shrubs and trees had their blinds down still and he would not have changed places with a soul in any one of them for a hundred pounds. He had on his new brown cycling suit, a handsome Norfolk jacket thing for thirty pounds, and his legs, those martyr legs, were more than consoled by thick checkered stockings, thin in the foot, thick in the leg, for all they had endured. A neat packet of American cloth behind the saddle contained his change of raiment, and the bell and the handlebar and the hubs and lamp, albeit a trifle freckled by wear, glittered blindingly in the rising sunlight. And at the top of the hill, after only one unsuccessful attempt which somehow terminated on the green, Hoopdriver mounted, and with a stately and cautious restraint in his pace and a dignified curvature of path, began his great cycling tour along the southern coast. There is only one phrase to describe his course at this stage, and that is voluptuous curves. He did not ride fast, he did not ride straight. An exacting critic might say he did not ride well, but he rode generously, opulently, using the whole road and even nibbling at the footpath. The excitement never flagged. 
So far he had never passed or been passed by anything, but as yet the day was young and the road was clear. He doubted his steering so much that for the present he had resolved to dismount at the approach of anything else upon wheels. The shadows of the trees lay very long and blue across the road. The morning sunlight was like amber fire. At the crossroads at the top of West Hill, where the cattle trough stands, he turned towards Kingston and set himself to scale the little bit of ascent. An early heathkeeper in his velveteen jacket marveled at his efforts, and while he yet struggled, the head of a carter rose over the brow. At the sight of him, Mr. Hoopdriver, according to his previous determination, resolved to dismount. He tightened the brake, and the machine stopped dead. He was trying to think what he did with his right leg whilst getting off. He gripped the handles and released the brake, standing on the left pedal and waving his right foot in the air. Then, these things take so long in the telling, he found the machine was falling over to the right. While he was deciding upon a plan of action, gravitation appears to have been busy. He was still irresolute when he found the machine on the ground, himself kneeling upon it, and a vague feeling in his mind that again Providence had dealt harshly with his shin. This happened when he was just level with the heath-keeper. The man in the approaching cart stood up to see the ruins better. "'That ain't the way to get off,' said the heath-keeper. Mr. Hoopdriver picked up the machine. The handle was twisted askew again. He said something under his breath. He would have to unscrew the beastly thing. "'That ain't the way to get off,' repeated the heath-keeper after a silence. I know that, said Mr. Hoopdriver, testily, determined to overlook the new specimen on his shin at any cost. He unbuckled the wallet behind the saddle to get out the screw-hammer. If you know it ain't the way to get off, what do you do it for? said the heath-keeper, in a tone of friendly controversy. Mr. Hoopdriver got out his screw-hammer and went to the handle. He was annoyed. That's my business, I suppose, he said, fumbling with the screw. The unusual exertion had made his hands shake frightfully. The heath-keeper became meditative, and twisted his stick in his hands behind his back. You've broken your handle, ain't you? he said presently. Just then the screw-hammer slipped off the nut. Mr. Hoopdriver used a nasty, low word. They're trying things, them bicycles, said the heath-keeper charitably very trying. Mr. Hoopdriver gave the nut a vicious turn and suddenly stood up. He was holding the front wheel between his knees. I wish, said he, with a catch in his voice, I wish you'd leave off staring at me. Then with the air of one who has delivered an ultimatum, he began replacing the screw-hammer in the wallet. The heath-keeper never moved. Possibly he raised his eyebrows, and certainly he stared harder than he did before. You're pretty unsociable he said slowly, as Mr. Hoopdriver seized the handles and stood ready to mount as soon as the cart had passed. The indignation gathered slowly but surely. "'Why don't you ride on a private road of your own if no one ain't to speak to you?' asked the heath-keeper, perceiving more and more clearly the bearing of the matter. "'Can't no one make a passin' remark to you, touchy? Ain't I good enough to speak to you? Been struck wooden all of a sudden?' Mr. Hoopdriver stared into the immensity of the future. He was rigid with emotion. It was like abusing the lions in Trafalgar Square. But the heath-keeper felt his honor was at stake. "'Don't you make no remarks to him,' said the keeper as the carter came up broadside to them. 
He's a bloomin' duke, he is. He don't converse with no one under a earl. He's off to Windsor, he is. That's why he's stickin' his behind out so haughty. Pride? Why, he's got so much of it. He has to carry some of it in that there bundled there, for fear he'd bust if he didn't ease himself a bit. He? But Mr. Hoopdriver heard no more. He was hopping vigorously along the road in a spasmodic attempt to remount. He missed the treadle once and swore viciously to the keeper's immense delight. "'No, no,' said the heath-keeper. In another moment Mr. Hoopdriver was up, and after one terrific lurch of the machine, the heath-keeper dropped out of earshot. Mr. Hoopdriver would have liked to look back at his enemy, but he usually twisted round and upset if he tried that. He had to imagine the indignant heath-keeper telling the carter all about it. He tried to infuse as much disdain as possible into his retreating aspect. He drove on his sinuous way down the dip by the new mare and up the little rise to the crest of the hill that drops into Kingston Vale. And so remarkable is the psychology of cycling that he rode all the straighter and easier because the emotions the heathkeeper had aroused relieved his mind of the constant expectation of collapse that had previously unnerved him. To ride a bicycle properly is very like a love affair. Chiefly, it is a matter of faith. Believe you do it, and the thing is done. Doubt and for the life of you, you cannot. Now you may perhaps imagine that as he rode on, his feelings toward the heathkeeper were either vindictive or remorseful, vindictive for the aggravation, or remorseful for his own injudicious display of ill-temper. As a matter of fact, they were nothing of the sort. A sudden, a wonderful gratitude possessed him. The glory of the holidays had resumed its sway with a sudden accession of splendor. At the crest of the hill he put his feet upon the footrests, and now, riding moderately straight, went with a palpitating break down that excellent descent. A new delight was in his eyes, quite over and above the pleasure of rushing through the keen, sweet morning air. He reached out his thumb and twanged his bell out of sheer happiness. "'He's a bloomin' duke, he is,' said Mr. Hoopdriver to himself in a soft undertone, as he went soaring down the hill and again, he's a bloomin' duke. He opened his mouth in a silent laugh. It was having a decent cut, did it? His social superiority had been so evident that even a man like that noticed it. No more Manchester department for ten days. Out of Manchester, a man. The draper hoop driver, the hand, had vanished from existence. Instead was a gentleman, a man of pleasure, with a five-pound note, two sovereigns and some silver at various convenient points of his person, at any rate as good as a duke, if not precisely, in the peerage. Involuntarily, at the thought of his funds, Hoopdriver's right hand left the handle and sought his breast pocket, to be immediately recalled by a violent swoop of the machine towards the cemetery. Whoo! Just missed that half-brick! Mischievous brutes there were in the world to put such a thing in the road, some bloominary or other. Ought to prosecute a few of these roughs, and the rest would know better. That must be the buckle of the wallet rattling on the mud-guard. How cheerfully the wheels buzzed. The cemetery was very silent and peaceful, but the veil was waking, and windows rattled and squeaked up, and a white dog came out of one of the houses and yelped at him. He got off rather breathless at the foot of Kingston Hill and pushed up. Halfway up, an early milk chariot rattled by him. Two dirty men with bundles came hurrying down. Hoopdriver felt sure they were burglars, carrying home the swag. It was up Kingston Hill that he first noticed a peculiar feeling, 
a slight tightness at his knees but he noticed too at the top that he rode straighter than he did before the pleasure of riding straight blotted out these first intimations of fatigue a man on horseback appeared hoopdriver in a tumult of soul at his own temerity passed him then down the hill into kingston with the screw hammer behind in the wallet rattling against the oil can he passed without misadventure a fruiterer's van and a sluggish cartload of bricks and in kingston hoopdriver with the most exquisite sensations saw the shutters half removed from a draper's shop and two yawning youths in dusty old black jackets and with dirty white comforters about their necks clearing up the planks and boxes and wrappers in the window preparatory to dressing it out even so had hoopdriver been on the previous day but now was he not a bloomin duke palpably in the sight of common men then round the corner to the right bell banged furiously and so along the road to surbiton whoop for freedom and adventure every now and then a house with an expression of sleepy surprise would open its eye as he passed and to the right of him for a mile or so the weltering thames flashed and glittered talk of your joy de verve albeit with a certain cramping sensation about the knees and calves slowly forcing itself upon his attention end of chapter four chapter five the shameful episode of the young lady in gray now you must understand that mr hoopdriver was not one of your fast young men if he had been king lemuel he could not have profited more by his mother's instructions he regarded the feminine sex as something to bow to and smirk at from a safe distance years of the intimate remoteness of a counter leave their mark upon a man it was an adventure for him to take one of the young ladies of the establishment to church on a sunday few modern young men could have merited less the epithet dorg but i have thought at times that his machine may have had something of the blade in its metal decidedly it was a machine with a past mr hoopdriver had bought it second-hand from hares in putney and hare said it had had several owners second-hand was scarcely the word for it and allaire was mildly puzzled that he should be selling such an antiquity he said it was perfectly sound if a little old-fashioned but he was absolutely silent about its moral character it may even have begun its career with a poet say in his glorious youth it may have been the bicycle of a really bad man no one who has ever ridden a cycle of any kind but will witness that the things are unaccountably prone to pick up bad habits and keep them it is undeniable that it became convulsed with the most violent emotions directly the young lady in gray appeared it began an absolutely unprecedented wobble unprecedented so far as hoopdriver's experience went it showed off the most decadent sinuosity it left a track like one of beardsley's feathers he suddenly realized too that his cap was loose on his head and his breath a mere remnant the young lady in gray was also riding a bicycle she was dressed in a beautiful bluish gray and the sun behind her drew her outline in gold and left the rest in shadow hoopdriver was dimly aware that she was young rather slender dark and with a bright color and bright eyes strange doubts possessed him as to the nature of her nether costume he had heard of such things of course french perhaps her handles glittered a jet of sunlight splashed off her bell blindingly she was approaching the high road along an affluent from the villas of surbiton 
fee roads converged slantingly she was travelling at about the same pace as mr hoopdriver the appearances pointed to a meeting at the fork of the roads hoopdriver was seized with a horrible conflict of doubts by contrast with her he rode disgracefully had he not better get off at once and pretend something was wrong with his treadle yet even the end of getting off was an uncertainty that last occasion on putney heath on the other hand what would happen if he kept on to go very slow seemed the abnegation of his manhood to crawl after a mere schoolgirl besides she was not riding very fast on the other hand to thrust himself in front of her consuming the road in his tendril-like advance seemed an incivility greed he would leave her such a very little his business training made him prone to bow and step aside if only one could take one's hands off the handles one might pass with a silent elevation of the hat of course but even that was a little suggestive of a funeral meanwhile the roads converged she was looking at him she was flushed a little thin and had very bright eyes her red lips fell apart she may have been riding hard but it looked uncommonly like a faint smile and the things were yes rationals Suddenly an impulse to bolt from the situation became clamorous. Mr. Hoopdriver pedaled convulsively, intending to pass her. He jerked against some tin thing in the road, and it flew up between front wheel and mudguard. He twisted round towards her. Had the machine a devil? At that supreme moment it came across him that he would have done wiser to dismount. He gave a frantic whoop and tried to get round. Then, as he seemed falling over, he pulled the handle straight again into the left by an instinctive motion, and shot behind her hind wheel, missing her by a hair's breadth. The pavement curb awaited him. He tried to recover and found himself jumped up on the pavement and riding squarely at a neat wooden paling. He struck this with a terrific impact and shot forward off his saddle into a clumsy entanglement. Then he began to tumble over sideways and completed the entire figure in a sitting position on the gravel with his feet between the fork and the stay of the machine. The concussion on the gravel shook his entire being. He remained in that position, wishing that he had broken his neck, wishing even more heartily that he had never been born. The glory of life had departed. Bloomin' Duke indeed. These unwomanly women. There was a soft whir, the click of a brake, two footfalls, and the young lady in grey stood holding her machine. She had turned round and come back to him. The warm sunlight now was in her face. "'Are you hurt?' she said. She had a pretty, clear, girlish voice. She was really very young, quite a girl, in fact, and rode so well. It was a bitter draught. Mr. Hoopdriver stood up at once. "'Not a bit,' he said, a little ruefully. He became painfully aware that large patches of gravel scarcely improved the appearance of a Norfolk suit. I'm very sorry indeed. It's my fault, she said, interrupting and so saving him on the very verge of calling her Miss. He knew Miss was wrong, but it was a deep-seated habit with him. I tried to pass you on the wrong side. Her face and eyes seemed all alive. It's my place to be sorry. But it was my steering. I ought to have seen you were a novice, with a touch of superiority. But you rode so straight coming along there. She really was dashed pretty. Mr. Hoopdriver's feelings passed the nadir. When he spoke again, there was the faintest flavor of the aristocratic in his voice. It's my first ride, as a matter of fact. But that's no excuse for my, uh, blundering. 
Your finger's bleeding, she said abruptly. He saw his knuckle was barked. I didn't feel it, he said, feeling manly. You don't at first. Have you any sticking plaster? If not, she balanced her machine against herself. She had a little side pocket, and she whipped out a small packet of sticking plaster with a pair of scissors in a sheath at the side and cut off a generous portion. He had a wild impulse to ask her to stick it on for him, controlled. Thank you, he said. Machine all right, she asked, looking past him at the prostrate vehicle, her hands on her handlebar. For the first time, Hoopdriver did not feel proud of his machine. He turned and began to pick up the fallen fabric. He looked over his shoulder and she was gone, turned his head over the other shoulder, down the road and she was riding off. Orf, said Mr. Hoopdriver. Well, I'm blowed. Talk about slap-up. His aristocratic refinement rarely adorned his speech in his private soliloquies. His mind was whirling. One fact was clear. A most delightful and novel human being had flashed across his horizon and was going out of his life again. The holiday madness was in his blood. She looked round. At that he rushed his machine into the road and began a hasty ascent. Unsuccessful. Try again. Confound it, will he never be able to get up on the thing again? She will be round the corner in a minute. Once more. Ah, pedal, wobble. No. Right this time, he gripped the handles and put his head down. He would overtake her. The situation was primordial. The man beneath prevailed for a moment over the civilized superstructure, the draper. He pushed at the pedals with archaic violence. So Paleolithic man may have ridden his simple bicycle of chipped flint in pursuit of his exogamous affinity. She vanished round the corner. His effort was titanic. What should he say when he overtook her? That scarcely disturbed him at first. How fine she had looked, flushed with the exertion of riding, breathing a little fast, but elastic and active. Talk about your ladylike home-keeping girls with complexions like cold veal. But what should he say to her? That was a bother and he could not lift his cap without risking a repetition of his previous ignominy. She was a real young lady, no mistake about that. None of your blooming shop girls. There is no greater contempt in the world than that of shop men for shop girls, unless it be that of shop girls for shop men. Phew, this was work. A certain numbness came and went at his knees. May I ask to whom I am indebted, he panted to himself, trying it over. That might do. Lucky he had a card case, a hundred a shilling while you wait. He was getting wended. The road was certainly a bit uphill. He turned the corner and saw a long stretch of road and a gray dress vanishing. He set his teeth. Had he gained on her at all? Monkey on a gridiron, yelped a small boy. Hoopdriver redoubled his efforts. His breath became audible, his steering unsteady, his pedaling positively ferocious. A drop of perspiration ran into his eye, irritant as acid. The road really was uphill, beyond dispute. All his physiology began to cry out at him. A last tremendous effort brought him to the corner and showed yet another extent of shady roadway, empty save for a baker's van. His front wheel suddenly shrieked aloud. Oh, Lord, said Hoopdriver, relaxing. Anyhow, she was not in sight. He got off unsteadily, and for a moment his legs felt like wisps of cotton. 
He balanced his machine against the grassy edge of the path and sat down panting. His hands were gnarled with swollen veins and shaking palpably. His breath became viscid. I'm hardly in training yet, he remarked. His legs had gone leaden. I don't feel as though I'd had a mouthful of breakfast. Presently he slapped his side pocket and produced therefrom a brand new cigarette case and a packet of Vansidart's red herring cigarettes. He filled the case. Then his eye fell with a sudden approval on the ornamental checkering of his new stockings. The expression in his eyes faded slowly to abstract meditation. She was a stunning girl, he said. I wonder if I shall ever set eyes on her again. And she knew how to ride, too. Wonder what she thought of me. The phrase Bloomin' Duke floated into his mind with a certain flavor of comfort. He lit a cigarette and sat smoking and meditating. He did not even look up when vehicles passed. It was perhaps ten minutes before he roused himself. What rot it is! What's the good of thinking such things, he said. I'm only a blessed draper's assistant. To be exact, he did not say blessed. The service of a shop may polish a man's exterior ways, but the prentice's dormitory is an indifferent school for either manners or morals. He stood up and began wheeling his machine towards Escher. It was going to be a beautiful day, and the hedges and trees and the open country were all glorious to his town-tired eyes, but it was a little different from the elation of his start. Look at the gentleman with a bike at all, said a nursemaid on the path to a personage in a perambulator. That healed him a little. Gentleman was her bicatel. Bloomin' Duke. I can't look so very seedy, he said to himself. I wonder. I should just like to know. There was something very comforting in the track of her pneumatic running straight and steady along the road before him. It must be hers. No other pneumatic had been along the road that morning. It was just possible, of course, that he might see her once more, coming back. Should he try and say something smart? He speculated what manner of girl she might be. Probably she was one of these here new women. He had a persuasion the cult had been maligned. Anyhow, she was a lady. And rich people, too. Her machine couldn't have cost much under twenty pounds. His mind came round and dwelt some time on her visible self. Rational dress didn't look a bit unwomanly. However, he disdained to be one of your fortune hunters. Then his thoughts drove off at a tangent. He would certainly have to get something to eat at the next public house. End of section two. Recording by Patty Cunningham.